Thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Old Ways Podcast. We are back in our interview series for 2023 with Dr. Megan Cannell. And we are, thank you for joining the show. I appreciate that. Hello. Uh, we have a very interesting topic du jour almost to get to tonight. One of the things that I want to sort of get off of the top is to uh, what I always do is like allow the guests to introduce themselves and what they do and sort of what they bring to the table. All right. Well, so hi, I'm Dr. Megan Connell or Dr. Megan. I'm a psychologist by trade. I practice physically in Charlotte, North Carolina and virtually in over 30 states. I'm the co-founder of a media company called Geeks Like Us. Uh, through Geeks Like Us, I do a live play series uh, called Clinical Role, where it's uh, therapeutic game masters and psychologists playing uh, tabletop role-playing games. Uh, we're between ca campaigns right now, getting ready to start campaign two, though. I also do a series called Psychology at the Table, where I give tips and tricks for game masters on how to help players who maybe have depression or anxiety or dealing with different psychological issues that might come up in play. I'm also the co-founder of a new uh, practice that's opening up in Charlotte called HealthQuest Innovative Therapeutics, uh, where we're going to be focused on innovation and integration of different aspects of health into therapy. So I'm bringing a lot of applied gaming into that. My business partner does a lot of VR therapy. so. Nice. And then I'm also the author of an upcoming book called uh, Tabletop Role-Playing Therapy, uh, The Guide for the Clinician GM. Fantastic. And I do a lot of other things too. <laughs> I have a whole list. It's That's a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. It all sounds really fantastic. I think it's a uh, congratulations at the top on the book. Uh, that's a huge uh, accomplishment and you should be very proud of it. Hopefully we'll all get to talk about it and read it or potentially hear it uh, yes. at some point in the near future. So I took this interview the 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 topic and and you and i thought about a couple of questions and so as we sort of unbox a little bit of what you do and uh, how you view things what i want to start with is how how different or perhaps familiar do role playing games run for therapeutic purposes and then how does that look versus say a casual game night you might run with friends yeah, so it it's really interesting because for the most part, if you were to be a fly on a wall at one of my therapeutic games, it wouldn't look all that different from a casual game. Um, okay. There, there are some differences, though. For me, like one of the things that will happen is sometimes stuff comes up and people start feeling things or having big reactions. And I'll put down the GM screen, which signals to the group that the game's on pause. And then we process what's going on and we talk about it. We talk through... Uh, I do a lot of therapeutic encounters, but again, they look a lot like regular encounters. So it might be something like um, a social encounter where I'm wanting my players to stand up for themselves sure. and to advocate for themselves. And so, you know, setting that up and putting them into that, like uh, one of my favorite uh, NPCs I have ever created, I actually got to play him on the live stream that I did. His name is Chet. Uh, and he is that guy at the office. Um, my, uh, I should say too, my therapeutic groups are all for women and girls. And we're talking about finding your voice in play, addressing anxiety, social interactions. Sure. And so, uh, Chet is the charming, good looking person that everybody loves who comes in and takes all the credit for your hard work. Chet, that Chet. <laughs> that Chet. Like I had introduced Chet in town and mm -hmm. then I had the players go in and they had a job of clearing out uh the sewers of go a goblin infestation sure and they were 
covered in muck and grossness and got to the end and we're fighting the big boss and Chet comes in with his gleaming armor and kills the head boss and is like, you're welcome and walks off and rides back to town and gets there before they do. (sighs) (laughs) And so that's actually was a therapeutic encounter though, because it was designed to get the, I wanted to rob them of the victory Mm which was important to get them all really super frustrated and angry. And then they had to go back to town and had to read the room that they walked into because everyone was celebrating. Chet came back and of course he was smelled great. He looked fine. Our heroes come back covered in muck and other things we will not talk about. Um, The bard was complaining how their socks were ruined and (laughs) Chet's telling the story of how he came in and saved this group. And they're all like, Oh, you must've been so glad Chet showed up and they're angry, but real you know, talking and we have to process through, like, look at this situation. If you start yelling at him and calling him out right now, everyone's going to turn against you. And how do we navigate this? And yeah. what does that look like? And so it, it was a really interesting thing and taking time for everyone to process like when that had happened to them in real life, because a lot of them had had experiences like that. And so it's those encounters where we're taking a growth point that one of the one or more of the people in the group has, and we're creating an opportunity for them to practice that skill. And so it's practicing standing up for ourselves, practicing reading the room, practicing a deep breathing technique. Uh, I had one player in a group who uh, decided to make their character to be afraid of water. Um, and okay. the first adventure that they were to go on was underwater and they all got water breathing cast in them. But this player um, had role played uh, their character having a panic attack. Yeah. And wow. Everybody else coming in and kind of we talked through like, okay, who all, you know, who all in here has had a panic attack? What helps? What doesn't help when you're having a panic attack? How can we help? What what would that look like? And talking that through and then practicing how to be a good supportive friend of somebody who's having a panic attack. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And it is really interesting because, again, when you look from the outside, if you don't know what you're looking at, it really just looks like a group of people playing a tabletop role playing game and Mm. having a lot of fun and doing wacky things. Just all all of the weird things that you can imagine. Um, my games get really weird because uh, I discovered a, a company uh, called Gemhammer and Sons, and they have something called the Deck of Wonder, mm-hmm. and it's a hundred cards of random things that can happen. Oh, great! And I love giving my quiet player something that I call the Wand of Wonder, and this they could use it seven times per day in the game, and they get to pull a card. And they cast the effect on somebody. And it's stuff like a tree grows out of the ground that grows chocolate-covered raisins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. but, but you're giving that um, that less than talkative person the ability to, to... You're giving them the narrative control, right? And so you're telling yep. them, you have the power. Go do, and go, go do this thing. And that gives them agency and license, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's that little, I love the fact too, that it's giving them that little bit of chaos. Mm-hmm. It's like mess with me. Like you have permission to mess with me and mess with the story that I'm telling. Right. And go for it. <laughs> yeah. No. And I can see the, uh, the allurement there that would come to that player, that uh, less than talkative player when they have that sort of card that can even control the person that's controlling everything or, or visually controlling everything with the, with the game master screen and whatnot. Yeah. That's a, that's a very interesting tool. I hadn't thought, uh, and thought along those lines. That's I'm sure that's what, I guess, what kind of development do you see out of that? Is that something that is a go-to then, uh, for those early tables? Yeah, it's really fun. Like it's, it's sort of fun too, because like when the players feel stuck, 
a lot of times they'll turn to the player who has the random magic that mm-hmm. bring chaos into the game magic items. They're like, swing the wand. I'm like, really? It's like, yes. We don't know what we're doing. Let's just roll the dice. Let's see what happens. That's fantastic. So, um, and it does become sort of this fun thing. And it's like, let's bring things in and let's make it weird. Um, mm-hmm. And people love that. And it, it's really interesting because like one of the beautiful things with role-playing games is I think like most game masters see this where it starts off and a lot of times people are trying to be serious. And then after you've gotten a game or two under your belt, all bets are off. It is now we are doing goofy, weird stuff. And <laughs> it's who knows if it's going to work or not. Sure. Um, and it, it's really fun to see that growth. And I think that's important too, of like learning how to not take yourself too seriously, learning how not to take this situation too seriously and to kind of hold things back and be like, uh, do I need to hold on to this tightly or can I kind of let that go? And that's actually like a cornerstone of the style of therapy that I teach is um, acceptance and commitment therapy. We call it fusion when we hold too tightly to something and defusion when we can learn to let it go and not hold something personally. Hmm. Okay. So, so what came first then, gaming or therapy? Technically gaming. I started playing uh, tabletop role-playing games in middle school. So back in ye olden times when mm. you did not even have a character sheet, you had a piece of notebook paper. That's correct. And on that notebook paper, you would write down strength and you would roll dice. <laughs> <laughs> I made clones of Legolas over and over and over again because <laughs> I read The Lord of the Rings, I think like two or three times in middle school. I loved it. Um, it was still like one of the best book series ever, I think. And just, I, I loved Legolas. I loved the idea of being this elf archer who's glamorous and beautiful and deadly. And But I, I took a very, very long hiatus and became a therapist and started playing again. It was actually watching uh, Will Wheaton's Ashes of Valhalla. Val- okay. I think that's how you say it. Something um, like that, yeah. Something like that. On Geek and Sundry that was I was watching, I'm like, oh man, I remember playing these in middle school. I loved these games. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. And we started running a fantasy age uh, game in my uh, for my family, but then we switched over to the um, Dungeons and Dragons starter set for 5th edition mm-hmm. and had a lot of fun there. And uh, I joined a Sunday gr- gaming group and uh seven years later no oh yeah seven years later we are still playing together That's like great. every week pretty much it's awesome <laughs> yeah i come from a uh, small we call them tribe here of gamers where i live and some of us have been playing together um, a couple of decades at this point and it's interesting to see how the group dynamic over the long term has changed so you've gotten players that have played together since since middle school uh, very Somewhat infamously, uh, they, a science teacher in our middle school allowed us to not be sort of sequestered in the lunchroom to take lunch. And he would allow us in this auditorium style room he had to teach his science classes. My name is, uh, name is Mr. Lackey. He allowed us to play games in his, in his room during our lunch hour. And that's where two or three of the core friends that I had since then met. And that's where we started playing games. And it really mm-hmm. just didn't stop. And other people have come in and added and people, of course, have have gone to live other places and gotten married and have lives and everybody's grown up. But I think it's great that storytelling, which is at the core, really, of of any tabletop role playing game to some extent, uh, has been c- continued to be with us for years. Right. And mm-hmm. it's the love of stories that continues to bring us together in those themes. I guess I'd ask then. What what themes in tabletop are you 
seeing as traditionally therapeutic. So beyond the, the example that you gave us, when you work and practice with uh, fellow gamers, I'll just put it like that, um, what, what themes are you drawing on to show them to how they can work through problems or challenges that arise? I think like there's a story that I tell a lot because like this is the, probably the most powerful and meaningful example I've ever seen. Um, so one of my very early groups, I ran sort of a um, version of like uh, the rise of Tiamat for uh, we were using D&D at the time. And uh, so it's just I, I, the version was basically there was a dragon cult trying to bring Tiamat to the prime material. And that was about where the overlap ended. <laughs> um, and uh, the group finally figured out who the person was. It was a green dragon in disguise. They got all their NPC friends together. They found a stone barn that they confronted the person in while they were in their human form. And they overpowered this adult green dragon. I didn't mm -hmm. hold back. Like I, it was a full stat block adult green dragon and they fought yeah. it in a situation where they took away its ability to fly and they did awesome. Great. And it was this amazing, powerful moment because it was, so again, my groups are all girls. And so these girls, a lot of them had been bullied, ostracized, didn't have as many friends as they would like, just had all, all these difficult challenges that they had had to overcome. And they got the killing blow on the dragon and I was like, you know, and I'm describing it and I look up and all of a sudden all of them burst into tears. And I had this little moment of panic. I'm like, oh God, oh God, what did I do? What did I do? Did, did they not want to kill the dragon? <laughs> like, <laughs> was that, should I not have gone so violent with like what, what was happening? And I was, they all like got into a big huddle hug and were holding out into each other and just sobbing. And I was like, are you guys okay? And one of them kind of pulled herself together enough to, and just went, look at what I can do when I'm with my friends. Yeah. Wow. And I was just like, Oh, I got, and I really got it then. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. That's what this is all about. It's like, look at what I, how powerful I can be when I work with my friends, when I come together with a group of people to overcome, you know, a challenge mm -hmm. and work together. And really, I think that's the, the central story. It's like that agency, that feeling of power, that feeling that we can make a difference. Like, um, not to talk like global politics or anything, but there's, this sense of hopelessness that's kind of permeating the culture yeah. of like what you do doesn't matter. If you recycle, it doesn't matter. If you conserve energy, it doesn't matter. If you do, you know, all, all this, it doesn't matter. And it's just like, we feel so powerless in our day to day. And then to have this story, to have this narrative where you play this character who starts off, it doesn't matter. But then as they go through the levels, as they rise up, it does matter. They can make a difference. They can save the day. Yeah. That, that's a very traditional hero of a thousand faces sort of story where mm -hmm. someone begins in it with the belief that they're just a peasant, they're nobody, and they rise to be something completely different. I think there's a great sort of rebirth Phoenix quality to some of that stuff. And it's certainly evident in a lot of people that I know who use gaming probably subconsciously as therapy, um, whether that be a proper amount of escapism to, to be someone else for a little while and to experience exhilarations or all sorts of subset emotions and mental states, or whether it's truly something that they see that this collective story that they're telling um, is something that helps bring them to a better mental place. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to do that, uh, which sort of dovetails a bit into the next question I have, which is, so for, for the old ways, we play mostly mature games in the broadest sense of the term, right? Uh, so when we play games like Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green, Sanity is a stat, mm-hmm. right? And so we deal with sanity ratings and loss gains, plus things happen to our characters or our investigators. They experience traumas, potentially pick up manias, phobias. They all play a part in what we express during those sessions, but they're, they're based on a mechanic. And I guess I wonder as... Uh, a doctor, how you feel about that? What's your what your perspective is on those types of mechanics or elements within the gaming culture? Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of sanities. The sanity scores, like it, it, sort of implies that like there there is a meter in all of us, and that when that meter gets to a certain point, like bad things happen. And like to a certain extent, like we do have that stress meter, right? We do have that. Um, that level that when we hit it, it will, um, you know, we can have sort of a breakdown or just like hit our, our limits, you know? So like, I get what the mechanics are trying to get at. And like, especially in a game like Call of Cthulhu, where it's like, this is something that's so beyond your puny brain's ability to understand, even trying to look at it harms you. Um, and, and like, from a game perspective, it's really hard to define, like, how does that look as a mechanic? How do sure. we start, you know, start to do that? And um, I think for some people, though, it, especially like with the clients I work with, I could see some of them, if like sanity had been a metric, they would have been like, well, I need to start at the highest level because I'm really broken. And I, I'm coming into this and it's just like, right. Yikes. Right. <laughs> you know, how do we heal? And like, I, I like the idea of you have to pay attention to your character's mental health as well. And I, I think in some ways, that's what the sanity score is trying to do. It is trying to be like, you've got to rest. You've got to, if you keep pushing yourself and looking at all these horrors and looking at all this murder, looking at all this death, like that's going to damage you Mm -hmm. and it's going to change you in a way that you might not like. Yep. And like, I I think though, like a lot of the, again, are understandably the horror games don't always do a good job of recovery, right? It's not, because like I, I will be honest, I haven't played Cthulhu, but my understanding is That's you okay. can't get the sanity scores back. Like once you start going one direction, it doesn't go back the other. I think the the nice part of what Chaosium has done with the BRP rules and, and the sanity mechanic is they've actually introduced an entire section in the book that deals with recovery. Oh, good. So there there are ways where you can speak and have you know, people who are trained psychotherapists assist the character. It takes, and the best part about it for the story is it takes time. So it isn't, I go to the cleric and they cast a spell on me and poof, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, it is okay. The character has to take time off and they have to talk through with someone and to understand what's happened to them to, whether that be in a role play sense to get tools or to learn how to cope with what they've what they've seen the unnatural forces of the you know cthulhu mythos that they've encountered but there is a mechanic that allows them to get that 
that sanity potentially back, right? And it it can be as simple as they they take time to themselves. And in time, I mean days, weeks, etc. Mm-hmm. Obviously, more can be gained back by going to a trained professional, getting yourself in in front of someone who knows how to help, right? Um, but it is not a end all be all. Cannot come back unless you're talking very specifically about delving into the mythos, reading, spell work, stuff like that, which as a game mechanic, that is a portion of your sort of that human mind that can no longer be repaired because you've, I think the best way to say is infected yourself with Mm -hmm. a sort of um, arcane understanding that's, that is beyond you. Right. So there's a little bit of both, I think. And a lot of that is up to the keeper's discretion as far as how they want to implement the rules, how they want to allow for for sanity losses and recoveries. So they also have rules in uh, a secondary book in Pulp Cthulhu that allows the investigator to spend luck to buy down the, the amount of sanity they might lose, sort of to make the character a little bit more like an Indiana Jones type of character that is, has a little bit more survivability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that those sanity rules play a little a little lighter of a role in a game. It's more like playing through, you know, Brandon Fraser uh, as in the Mummy movies or something like that. It's a little bit lighter as far as the the direct impact. So there are rules for it. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that. I didn't. Yeah, like I said, I, I have a brain that struggles to learn gaming systems, and so like once I have learned a gaming system, I tend to stick with it just because I. Uh, I, this is great for podcast. I'm going to gesture to all the books that are behind me. I have many, many different rule systems she and does, I have tried I to, yeah, I've tried to read many of them and I haven't, um, I, a lot of them I'm like, what? I don't, I don't get this. I don't know what the, they're saying. Um, yeah. but it, it's, it's something that I'm trying to do and get a little bit better at is learning more systems. But I think like, it, it's an interesting thing too, because like, you know, I, I have a lot of debates with some other folks in the, you know, geeky psychology field about this because I read the first, the Dragons of Autumn, Dragonlance book. Mm-hmm. And also, like, there was a lot in that book I really, really liked. And one of the big ones was the description of what the process of learning a spell is like for a wizard. Yeah. And how mentally taxing it is just to hold on to those words and that it's like this magic is this thing that the brain really isn't designed to interact with and it hurts them and that like that idea of if you push yourself too hard in magic like your brain is going to start to go fuzzy because like your neurons like basically overfire and crossfire and can't handle it mm-hmm. and so it's this really interesting idea of like okay i can start to see how this would start to mess with your perception of reality and everything so I think there's room for it. I just don't know that we we do it very well. And I think like it might come to an issue of language. I've talked to a few people who play games um, in Germany and like German just has so many more words <laughs> for things. <laughs> and, and I think yeah. like that's that might be something we tend to use sanity or, you know, um, just mental capacity to mean so many like is that it can mean emotional. So it can mean like you know, we can get frazzled from staring at a, you know, calculus equation for too long. It's a different feeling. Like when I'm trying to stretch my brain to remember math and do complex math, I can get a headache. And that pain is real. Yeah. 
right? But what's the cost, you know? And so that's like, that's sort of like what we're trying to get at with some of these things in the games, but like, we don't have a word for headache caused from overstraining my brain and thought from headache from seeing lots of trauma or it. it, And so I, I don't know. There's an answer out there. I don't have it yet. (laughs) I think it's not, I don't, I think your answer is fine. Actually, just my perspective. I do think that trying, trying to consolidate whatever happens to a human being on a mental and emotional level, when you're subjecting it to things that it isn't normally seeing in its day-to-day life. And thus it appears as unnatural or um, unnameable, all of the unwords that, that Lovecraft would use. I think it is sort of ham fisted, but I don't know that, I don't know that we've created a good system for it. Mm Mm-hmm. You could, you could, I suppose, in in a world separate mental stress versus emotional stress versus physical stress, and you could try to to see where a, a character lands during any sort of event, right? Because you're going to have emotional stress with you know a, a loved one, so uh, or during a difficult emotional situation where, uh, but you're also going to have men. It's, it's definitely difficult to probably get it all in one game system. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain that there are other systems out there that do it differently than Call of Cthulhu. I think it's interesting, the initiatives that you're a part of the groups you're a part of, right? So you have a very um, unique perspective or close to unique perspective, at least for our listenership, as far as how therapeutic GM programs and initiatives go. Um, if someone was out there and they were looking to get into these mm-hmm. courses, um, beyond the broad brushstrokes, what kind of oversight is there? Who's eligible? What are the legal protections for someone who gets into that space? And then the dangers they might consider. We have a lot of, I would say, adult listeners. Yeah. So most of our listenership is not the 14 to 21. It's probably five to 10 years greater than that. And there are people who work in the narrative space and might even work in the mental health space. Uh, so w- what should they consider? Yeah. So uh, Dr. Boca Mazzaro from Take This and I, uh, we developed a, a training. And one of the things we agreed on is that there's to be a good therapeutic game master, there's three core elements to it. One is being a trained mental health professional. So whether that's a psychologist, licensed uh, social worker, counselor, um, addictions counselor, something along those lines. So having that background, that expertise in mental health counseling. And then knowing the rule system of the game that you're going to run. So being a really competent game master. And then the third element is being willing to play, being willing to take that risk and play. He and I both argue that in order to be effective, the therapist in the room needs to be willing to get silly and be silly with the players because role-playing is a risk, right? Getting getting into character and role-playing out, especially if it, the content starts to get emotional, that is a very vulnerable state. And if you as the professional in the room aren't willing to model that behavior, nobody else is going to do it. So like I do horrible accents, totally on purpose, totally on purpose. All my accents are terrible. Sure. Right. To model that. It's not because I'm not a voice actor because I'm a psychologist. Um, you know, but it, it's that intersection of those three, three things that makes somebody really good. As far as like, what are, what's the oversight where are things, it's all very new. 
you know, one of the reasons I started running clinical role was because I knew the uh, Adam and Adam from Game to Grow. I knew Dr. B myself. I had met uh, Jack from the Bohana group. And I wanted us desperately to network with each other because there were a few other people using therapeutic gaming out there, but we were kind of the main folks doing it. And none of us needed another meeting. We were all busy. (laughs) And I was like, well, there's this little known thing about mental health professionals, which is we kind of suck at taking care of ourselves. (laughs) Um, We take care of everybody else. Like I I adore Mercedes Lackey because she had in her book, uh, The Black Griffin, one of the central questions is who heals the healer? And that's like one of the central tensions Mm. that gets resolved through the book. And, um, And so it's sort of that thing of like, come on, guys, we need to take care of ourselves. And I was the only one who was playing in a consistent game. So I was like, I'll GM, you guys play, and let's all start playing together. And so that we started playing together and talking and developing our... So there's, um, as far as I'm aware, in the US, at least, there's three different training programs right now. So game to grow runs their own certification program. Bohana Group has a certification program. And then I helped develop a Geek Therapeutics certification program. Um, I'm, of course, going to be biased towards the one I helped develop. But I would say, like, the folks sure. about, like, the cool thing is, like, we all sort of have a different focus and a different lens on how we approach the games. And so, like... If somebody's wanting to get into this, you know, and say they they read my, they're lovely people who buy my book and read my book. I just say that's not enough. That's enough to pipe your curiosity. It's enough to start asking questions and learning more, but it's not enough to start running. You know, like if I was sitting on an ethics committee and you're coming to me going, I want to run these games, it's like, well, which of the training programs have you been through? Like, have you gone and gotten, you know, any kind of supervision? Are you getting, who's your, you know, who are you consulting with? Um, in North Carolina, to when you are considering a different treatment modality, maybe something that's more experimental in nature, it's actually in our ethics that we are to consult with two different licensed psychologists. And so, but like, sit down and be like, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Do you see any pitfalls? What are your ideas? And document who that person is, talk with somebody else, and document that. And I think that's a really good idea, <laughs> just in general. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's a double and triple exactly, check, right? Exactly, and then you just do- document everything. Um, I actually have a chapter on ethics and the ethics of running tabletop games in my book um, because, like, I think it's really important. It was I did not like writing that chapter. I'll be honest with all the listeners out there. I'm really <laughs> I was is one of those things of like I did it to myself. I was kind of insistent that I thought it should be in there, but I was also like, oh my god, this is so hard to write. Um, I'm happy I got through it. I'm happy it's in there because I hope, I think it's probably going to be one of the more helpful chapters because for me as a grad student, when I was reading books, I thought a lot about ethics, but ethics were so just kind of like, take, you know, consider your ethical things. And that was about it in a lot of the books. And I was like, give me some, give me some other things. Give me some questions. Like, give me a checklist in here. I did that in the book. It's like, answer these questions. When you can answer these questions and answer these questions, document your answers, keep those on file so that in case something happens, you've done this stuff. And is the big thing is don't be a therapist for your friends. Wait, wait, wait. Say it again for the people in the back. Do not be a therapist for your friends. Even if one of your players comes to you and says, you know what? I really want to work on... um, I was abandoned at 14 and I want to work on that in this game and go, wow, I am so honored that you would come to me and trust with me with this. However, I'm not a trained professional. I am your friend and 
I, I don't know what's going to come up for you with doing that. And I don't think you can t- could totally know. Like, maybe I can help you find a game that's there run by a therapist. Maybe like we can find a good therapist who actually understands, you know, geekdom and gaming. But like, I don't feel comfortable bringing that into the game. Well, and there's so many pitfalls when you take a relationship, a friendship that is based around the gaming table and you decide to add in something as potentially volatile as childhood trauma and your plan is to work through it with the game master having full knowledge but possibly the four or five other people sitting around you having no knowledge Mm -hmm. of what's going on and you're going to expose them to your trauma they may have similar traumas and the responses around the table could be detrimental to everybody and and i have seen games go from things are clear skies and everybody's having a wonderful time to the opposite mm-hmm. of that because somebody brings up something that happened, you know, well, or how, how would you know your, how would you know, how would your character know this? Well, this is what happened to me. Well, hold on timeout. We don't need any of that. That's not what this table is for. Um, and I know that a ton of people in the gaming community use table experiences to work through things. Um, I, I would not lie to you and say that I have not done that. I have, mm-hmm but I have done it with people who are not under the auspices that they are going to be my therapist. Yeah. With, with clear and open knowledge. So that way there is no, um, or there is a less chance of there being an oops Mm -hmm. at the table or a problem. Um, we're, we're firm believers on the show of consent forms. Yep. Um, Monty cook games has made a, made an amazing one that we have used for years. And I know people are, I know there are people within the community that are not as as happy with them for the consent forms and the safety tools. Um, I will tell you that just like I would tell any of our players before you come on the show, I will have a consent form. Mm-hmm. Not just a legal release to use your audio, but you are going to tell me where your lines are because I want this to be as fun a space as possible. And I don't want to feel like we're going to trip over one of them because you decide you're too cool for a form. Yes. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not what we do. And, and it's those forms are so important and it's so valuable to use just because you want to know what's out of bounds. You want to know like, okay, don't bring up spiders. Right. Right. Which, you know, Cobalt uh, Press made one of my favorite monsters, which is the gargantuan lawn leg. So if anybody has a spider phobia, <laughs> I get a little like, <sighs> not this time. Okay. <laughs> um, it, and the like using safety tools too is something interesting about safety tools. And I, I do talk about this in the book as well as we all talk about using them and I think it's really good and we need to have them. There's no research on it though. Ooh. There is no research that shows that they're actually helpful. And there's a lot of social pressure to keep the game going. And so like, even if somebody wants to throw the X card, they might not because they don't want to feel like that guy or that, you know, that person who you know, ruins the narrative flow. Sure. And so I'm not saying this to be like, here's your rule to not use safety. No, have the safety tools. I think it's important to have, um, I call it dynamic safety tools. So I have included a pause button in mine. Mm -hmm. And the pause button is just for, hey, we're kind of getting near a topic that I don't love or I don't understand what's happening in the narrative right now. I am, (laughs) you know, like if we're all, I think everybody's pretty familiar in the community with the dread gazebo things, uh, story Mm -hmm. where the player did not know what a gazebo was. And so they acted in a very bizarre manner. Um, You know, that's a chance to throw a pause button where they go, okay, I'm so, I'm going to ask a dumb question. What's a gazebo? Right. (laughs) And 
that I think that kind of our my hypothesis would be that having that pause rather than just the the X. I think that is going to be a very powerful switch. So it's, it's something I would encourage people to have. Pardon me. As far as uh, working through stuff yourself in gaming, like for sure, I think we all do that. Like I do it. <laughs> um, and, but like, I, it's not, I want to work through my childhood trauma. Like the first campaign I played with my Sunday group, it was, I tended to be in very much so all work, no play kind of person. And I was like, I want to play a character who's mostly play because I want to learn how to play a little bit more and I want to rehearse playing <laughs> like and being goofy and not taking things so seriously. Um, my DM very much so punished that character for <laughs> goofing off. <laughs> but it, it was this sort of cool thing is like through the course of levels one through 20, the, the character got a little bit more serious and Megan learned how to be a little more goofy. And that was kind of, and that was cool. And the current character I'm playing, like one of the things I'm trying to be a better at is like knowing when to say, have it, not just having firm boundaries, but like seeing value in what, what I do and seeing value in my time and seeing value in, in those things. And so I was like, I want a character who knows that they're valuable. Yeah. And I want to practice that in that way. And like, even though like, yes, it, that's a growth edge for me. One, I'm talking about it with the GM and making sure that he's comfortable with that. But it's also, it's not like a heavy hitting thing. It's just a, here's a skill that I want to get better at. And so I'm going to play a character who's good at that skill so I can just practice that skill. And that can be something like, I want to be better at starting conversations. So I'm going to play the face of the group. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be better at listening and solving problems. So I'm going to be the thinky character. You know, th there's stuff like that that we can do as long as we have the consent and we're talking about it. And I'm very open with the whole group of like, this is what I'm trying to do with this character. Is, is that going to bother anybody? And if it does, then I don't do that, you know, and to be willing to do that stuff. But again, like, don't use it as therapy. Like if mm. it comes to a point where I recognize like, oh, I need to work on this big time. This is a bigger issue than I just need to practice a skill that's like, I'm going to bench this character for a while and go see my therapist and uh, take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's fair. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, this is something that Adam Davis says a lot. And I think it's worth quote, you know, citing him and quoting him on this is just, just because it's therapeutic doesn't mean it's therapy. Right. Like yeah. I started off as a music therapist and there were many times when I would play music and it would be therapeutic to me. It's like mm -hmm. whatever was in me just came out through the music and it was wonderful. But that wasn't therapy. I didn't meet, I didn't sit down to have all that emotion come out. It just kind of happened. Right. And so music therapy is intentionally taking music to achieve a non-musical goal. Same is true with applied tabletop gaming. It's taking a tabletop role-playing game and using it to teach a skill outside of the game. But speaking of gaming as therapy, then I suppose we should talk about your book. Yeah. Right. Uh, give give us a give us your best blurb because you haven't been you know haven't written that blurb a million times already, <laughs> or the the dreaded synopsis. Yes. Bo boil everything you've been working into into three hundred words. Wo yep. And tell me what your book is about. No, it, it means so much more than 300 words. But no, the industry says <laughs> no, your book is only worth blurb. 300 words. Yeah, it's, 
it's basically, it's just an overview of the history of tabletop gaming, the underlying research that you can use to pull to understand how it helps, what diagnoses it can work for and how, and then kind of the overall structure of how to develop, run, and notate your therapy groups. Um, I wrote it for professionals, but I tried to also leave the language approachable to the layperson um, because I imagine or I hope that there's a lot of people who play tabletop games and have gone, I have learned a lot about myself through playing this game. Why? Mm -hmm. And I want them to be able to read this book and maybe get a clue as to what it is about this game that is so impactful for them. Oh, also something I keep forgetting to talk about this section in my book, and it is the one I I am probably the most proud of. It's also probably the most poorly written. I will call myself out on this, but I included an appendix that is research questions. Because there are many graduate students out there who need research papers. And there is a just there is no research. There's lots of theories that have been written. Um, some amazing theories. Some people, especially in the LARPing community, have really been doing a lot of theory crafting, but not a lot of, you know, scientific studies. Hmm. And so I have a ton of research questions in the back that I want to see answered. So if you are a graduate student looking for a research topic, grab my book, check out one of the appendices. I can't remember which one. <laughs> it's the last <laughs> one. I think it's B, maybe C. I don't know. <laughs> and grab a research question. Patreon backers are going to get a chance to get your book uh, because the podcast is going to give several of them away in uh, appreciation for the doctor's appearance here with us. Uh, so maybe you'll, if, if one of them is doing a research paper, it may come just exactly at the right time. Oh, that would be great. I had this cool moment of writing it because one of the things Norton said is that they are hoping that it can be a republished thing so that we can do different editions as the research develops. And like, I was kind of having this vision of a future me that gets to write down like the introduction to the fourth edition of the book. And is like, I have happily gotten to remove all of the places where I said in this book, research is needed (laughs) because I I seriously like the longest citation I have is there is inadequate research on the use of tabletop role playing games and therapy. And I think I cited nine different authors who all said that studies were needed. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So since communication is a two way street, how can players help their game masters oh, or maybe make a newer game master feel comfortable? What can players do for their game masters from a, a sense of community, a sense of, of collective narrative coming together to tell the same story? What can they do? What, what's a great tool for them to use as a player? We talk a lot about mm-hmm. tools for the dungeon master and, oh, here are the things that you should do at the table. Here are the things to remember when you're running a game. What about when you're sitting and playing? What's, what's a, good, a good tool to use? Be interested in the game. You know, be interested in the story. Like, uh, I, uh, I had some heartbreak because I had put a lot of time. My players know this, so this is something I, would ha- I said to them. Uh, for clinical role, um, one of the items they found very early on in the campaign was a journal. It was a 30-page journal that I had written all the entries to. And peppered throughout it were clues to the overarching <laughs> narrative of the whole campaign. Sure. They never read it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, I have experienced that at the table where mm-hmm. I have 
gone, you know, you go into the mad scientist lab and you begin to build the plot and you're building, oh, here's this hook and here's this hook and here's this thread. Here's where this is going to land and we're going to need to do this. And I think one of the things I learned over the years of doing that was plan those things maybe a little less because you could put a ton of energy into an extra special cool thing that you can finally bring out the table. But if your players decide to completely circumvent that portion of the story, you will, you will have, you'll, you'll be beside yourself first, right? You'll be crying and you'll be sitting with your hand on your head, figuring out what a, I spent three weeks working on this. Um, but it's, it's best too to, to take those things and maybe, maybe not be, be careful in your investment when it comes to those things. I think that I would, that's my cautionary tale. Be mm-hmm. careful. Oh, completely. I, I love like, I got one of the cool things is like, I've just gotten to meet some really amazing people doing this. Um, and one of them, if, if anybody gets a chance to sit down and chit chat with Chris Lindsay, do so. He is a wonderful human and hilarious, but I, I was chatting with him and he said, one of his favorite things to do is to get in games and to play. And he, he says, especially dungeon crawls, because he has designed many, many a dungeon for tabletop gaming. And he's like, I'll see the map and I'll look at the map and I'll go, the traps are going to be there, there and there. And I have my character go off, go up and set off the traps. <laughs> I don't try to disarm the traps. I let the traps go off because that's fun for the dungeon master, right? That's sure. fun for the game master. They, they're they like, hee hee, <laughs> I gotcha, <laughs> right? And, and, and like playing into that, like doing the things that, you know, engaging with that lore, engaging with that world. Um, I, but I also think like, Letting the GM know when it's not working. Mm-hmm. My Sunday group, we've been doing a murder mystery and I have found out I'm really terrible at murder mysteries. <laughs> I just like, I'm like, cool. I know I'm supposed to go talk to somebody. I don't know. I, and like, I'll talk, we talk out of character and I'm just like, there's a lot of times where we're like, I'm so lost. It's mm-hmm. like, who's important here? It's hard for the GM because like we have as the GM, you have all the answers behind you and you're like, you're right there. It's right next to you. Can't you see it? And the players are just, you know, they don't know a lot of times. So also just be honest. Like if you're not getting something or something isn't clear to you, just ask those questions. Um, And like ask for feedback as players as well. At the end of the game, like if when the GM's, you know, saying like, how'd that go? How was that for everybody? Cool. That was good. What can we do to be better players for you? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think it might open up a lot more conversations between, you know, the the table to say how can this how can this move smoother, how can this go a, a little better for everybody at the table, right? So, if mm-hmm. it's a game where there is no big overarching narrative, there's no A to B to C to D plot that the the dungeon master game master is going to, you know, rope the players along to tell a specific story. If it is a game that is mostly on the players to generate the narrative based on what their characters are going to do. We need to be completely upfront and honest with the the players. Hey, because this game is about you, the character, you're going to be the engine here. So those are maybe a little bit further away from, from the more traditional D and D tables, but that doesn't mean they don't happen there either. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something too. It's a, it's a great point by you is to to have the, have the conversation both from the, the GM DM end and then also from the player and Hey, what, what can I do better? Is there something that I can do as a player that will help you facilitate the story more? 
Uh, and that's a great point. Mm-hmm. So bonus round. Woohoo. What's one thing you're looking forward to in 2023 that isn't the release of your book? Well, opening up my practice, we're signing the lease on the space mm. and getting HealthQuest open. Uh, I okay, I'm gonna. Did you ask me what I'm looking forward to? So one of the in getting to build your own practice means you get to build it, right? I'm getting to build the gaming room, which is going to be yes. our group room, and so we're likely going to go with the theme of a wizard's library. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. And so like, we're going to get like wall sconces with those LED flickering, like flame lights. And like, like we want it to really have this feel like when you walk in that you have walked into like some sort of like ancient magical place <laughs> and like have, you know, great music, ambient music in there. Um, we're, there's going to be a TV, but we're also going to have it like hidden behind like a tapestry at times. And like, I'm just... I could envision this in my head. I'm also going to finally have a place to store all my minis. Yay! <laughs> ah, that's going to be great. And I'm so looking forward to this. It's going to be... It, we're in an amazing space. We have a view of a park. We're going to have uh, walking areas. We're potentially going to have a therapist joining us who does LARPing. Oh, nice. And so like, we might be able to like expand out not just into applied gaming, but applied LARPing, which I think would be so amazing. So I, I'm really looking forward to HealthQuest opening and getting to see everything that's going to be. It's one of those things of like, it's exhilarating because it is both exciting and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best type, both yeah. exhilarating and terrifying. <laughs> okay, so uh, doctor, where can we find you at? And then if whether it be social media, whether it be the the website, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If listeners get interested in what you do and they want to learn more, where do they find you at? I'm at Megan D on all the socials. So that's M-E-G-A-N-P-S-Y-D. That is my uh, degree. It's a psychology doctorate for those who are interested as opposed to a philosophy doctorate, which is the PhD. I have this ID. One of my friends who I have written chapters for keeps getting that wrong. And he every he'll, the first edition of any book I've written a chapter for, I have to call him and be like, you did it again. the the second printing it is fixed (laughs) um but uh yeah so it's megan's id megan's id.com um hq psych psych.com for health quest once we open our doors uh that will be hopefully be in june or july of this year uh the book uh tabletop role-playing therapy is available from norton publishing um if you use the code ttrpt2020 you get 20 percent off your pre-order fantastic yeah, I don't know if that will hold true for the audiobook when that comes out. Um, but for the printed version and the ebook, you can get 20% off the pre-order if you use that code. And that also lets people know you got it from me getting out there and and hustling. So <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we appreciate the hustle. And we appreciate your time spent with the Old Ways Podcast. So this is the third installment of our interview series in 2023. Thank you so much, Doctor, for being uh, taking your time and uh, being with us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great talk. Thank you.